Oh my. <laughs> sure, yeah. Okay, good morning, everybody. Good morning. Let us pray. Lord Jesus Christ, Son of the living God, have mercy upon us sinners. Amen. Again we pray. Almighty and everlasting God, give us an increase of faith, hope, and charity, and that we may obtain what you have promised, make us to love what you have commanded. Through Jesus Christ, your Son, our Lord, who lives and reigns with you and the Holy Spirit, one God, now and forever. Amen. All right, the verse of the week, Matthew twenty-two thirty-seven. Let's speak this together. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. Yes, uh, what is this? What is this the summary of? Uh, first table, yeah. I mean, I'm using, if you're a cheater, you can see I'm using this for the first commandment, but it, it, it ultimately is the summary of the entire first table of the law, which is what, is the, what does the first table of the law deal with? Yes, I would maybe, I would maybe change the word love to relationship uh, to, to keep the idea that each of the tables of the law deals with a particular set of relationships. So that the first table of the law, which if you look or if you just remember what the Ten Commandments are, all of those are about loving uh, you know, having no other gods, not misusing the name of God, and remembering the Sabbath day that God has given you, and then the rest of them are dealing with your neighbor. So the first table, the first three commandments, is about the relationship between you and God, and the uh, second table is your relationship with your neighbor. So the summary of your relationship with God or the first table, is that you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. So this is sort of the, oh, that's right, the red one doesn't work. Look at this, you go away for one week and you just can't remember anything. That's yeah. I don't have a lot to look forward to, I guess. Uh, this is the rule of the house. To make, it, to make it kind of fun. What, so you're with God now, you come into God's house, well, every house has ground rules. Well, what's, what's the rule? Well, here, if you wanna live in this house, then you love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your mind, and with all your soul. Um, you, obviously, is who? Yeah, yeah. But, okay, that's a smart Alec. And that, I don't know who said it, uh, us. That's not smart, Alec, but it's too simple. I need you to be specific this time. Okay, believers, yes, 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 yes. Uh, can you keep going? Believers, who is a believer? What is a believer? Christian. A Christian, okay. Think about the... Um, Let's do it this way. Think about the Athanasian Creed. Who believes what's in the Athanasian Creed, according to the words of the Creed? 
whoever, whoever would be saved. So the you is whoever wishes to be saved. Or you can say whoever wishes to live. And when you are saved and when you live, where do you live? In the house of the Lord. And this is the rule of the house. Okay? Do you, are you, you see the connection? With all, uh, with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind, you are to love. What is it to love? What, is, what does it mean to love? What does it mean to love your wife? To respect your wife. <laughs> so, see, that's it. To put her first before all others. Yes. What, can you think of a different way of saying putting her first before all others? What are you doing with yourself? Yes, submitting. You are do, you're giving something, aren't you? What are you giving? If you're putting your wife first, what are you giving to her? Or, I mean, your husband, your spouse. All the money you have. <laughs> and? <laughs> and? All your being, everything. So to love is to give of all that you are and have and what's the passive side of that? If you're, in a, if you're in a marriage and you're giving all that you have, why does it not matter that you're giving everything? You say, well, I'm not going to have anything if I give everything. Well, you will because you are also receiving. <laughs> well, sure, but you're, you're giving and you're receiving. Mm -hmm. it's, easy, it's easy to say I'm going to give everything for my wife and, and then not have to worry about what I'm going to lack because I'm not going to lack anything because my wife is giving the fullness of herself to me. So I'm giving of the fullness of myself, but I'm also receiving of the fullness of another. That's love, to give and to receive fully. And you are to do that with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind, which, to continue using this uh, sort of marital imagery, because that's what this is about, by the way, is marriage, this is monogamy, which is, of course, what? What is monogamy? Other than a real pain, am I right? <laughs> I'm just kidding. Monogamy is... To have one relationship. To be married to one person. As opposed to what they practice out west. Polygamy. Specifically in Utah. <laughs> uh, which is a marriage to multiple people. Okay? But this is monogamous. You don't have any room in your heart, in your mind or in your soul for more than one. 
you know, the Lord kind of says like a Western, he looks at all the other gods you have lined up and he walks in and he says, well, this heart and this mind and this soul ain't big enough for more than one of us. So skin leather, okay? Uh, it's a monogamous relationship, all of your heart. You, you don't get to get by with saying, well, I'll love the Lord with most of my heart, but I'm still going to retain that small sliver that loves something else. You don't get to get away with that. It's God or nothing, all God or nothing. Uh, and you can either love him fully and receive him fully, or you cannot have him at all. That's, that's the purpose of this. No other gods, no other relationships, no harlot tree. What are the Israelites called? Harlots. Because they do what? They, this is the language of the Bible. This is not a paraphrase. They whore after other gods. Because the language is always relational. I have entered into this relationship with you. I, let me be your only one. Okay. Now, let's speak this again. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. What is the first commandment? You shall have no other gods. What does this mean? We should fear, love, and trust in God above all things. What is a God that you should not have any others of them? Yes, an idol. Uh, yeah, anything that comes before God would be an idol or a, or a God. Uh, I, was, I actually expected someone to say something you worship, and I was going to ask you what it meant to worship. Because you can, if you're going to use that definition, that a God is just something I worship, well, then your money isn't a God, because you don't, I don't worship my money. I just love it a lot, you know, uh, or, or whatever it is, my, my Friday evening beer binge. That's something that I don't worship it. I just really enjoy it. Uh, so it's not a God. Well, it is actually. Anything that comes before God. Luther would say that a God is anything that you look to for your greatest good. So what, what do you rely on? Uh, what could you not live without? Because if you can answer the question, what can I not live without with any material thing or experience, then that's an idol. Biscuits and gravy. Yeah, that's an idol. Although, although I will tell you, confession time, even as the pastor, I think I share that idolatrous sentiment. <laughs> there are some things in life that are just so, you just think you couldn't live without them. But, so the reality is, what is your God? What's the thing that you can't live without? The thing you can't give up? The thing that you say, if I didn't have this, life wouldn't be worth living. The thing that you look to for your greatest good. The, the fallback. Uh, here's a good example. How do you cope with stress? because everybody copes with stress a certain way. Are you a retail therapist? When you get really upset, do you go out and buy stuff for no reason, because that, that makes you feel better? Like, what, is your, what is your fallback? What is the thing that you rely on? Where do you derive your comfort? That's another one. So uh, that's big in, if you look at something like alcoholism. Where, from where do you derive your comfort? Something bad happens, and what is your impulse? Is your impulse to turn to the Lord, or is your impulse to turn to something else, like 
retail or like alcohol or like, I don't know, uh, food, yes, food. That's a good one too. Just eat your feelings away. Uh, everybody has a God, so you, you can never say that I don't have a God because when you start getting down to the nitty gritty of what does it really mean to have a God, what is an idol, uh, you have them. What is, the, what is the thing I cannot live without? What do I look to for my greatest good? Everybody has one. So you're not supposed to have any because if you have any, then you're not loving the Lord your God with all of your heart, even if you're loving him with most of your heart and mind and soul, okay? Uh, so what does it mean then that we have only one God? Well, it means that we fear, love, and trust in God, capital G, which is the one true God, above all else. So instead of looking to something else for our greatest good, we look to him. Instead of dealing with our stress, just to use that example again, in, instead of having the coping mechanism be food or booze or um, shopping or what, when, you know, whatever else it might be, that it be prayer and devotion and reading scripture and listening to the Lord's word, that that be your first recourse instead of something else. Which isn't to say that you can't enjoy uh, you know, a nice single malt aged scotch <laughs> or, or that you can't or that you can't enjoy a good hearty meal of biscuits and gravy, or that you can't enjoy going out and spending time shopping, but that those things don't run your life or take precedence over the things that really matter, okay? Uh, so trust in God above all else. When push comes to shove, he is, he is the one that you turn to. Okay, kids, you can go to Sunday school. Don't forget your card again. <laughs> yeah, then my, then my parents call me and say, well, make sure you don't get a big head. <laughs> yeah, mom and dads are good for that. Uh, there's, one, there's one other thing I want to talk about here with the verse of the week. We always run out of time. Uh, there's more to say about the verses than we have time in Bible class, really. With Why is it divided up this way? Heart, soul, and mind. Why those three? How does it cover everything? Yes. I mean, even when we do something, although it doesn't say that, what it says is mind, when you do something, you have to think that thought through, or maybe you don't think it through, but, but this is a good idea. So even physical activity is covered by how you think or how you Sure, act. yep. Yeah, good. And we would use that sort of Trinitarian structure Specifically in the liturgy, where? Confession? Yes. Specifically, what in confession? 
I have sinned against you in thought, word, and deed. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and mind. So it's not just that threes go well. You know, I don't, maybe you weren't taught this in English when you write a paper and you're doing, it's like this, this, and this. Things go better in threes. So don't do two, but don't do four. Have it right at three, because three is the sweet spot where, and you'll notice that if you didn't know it, you'll not be able to unknow it now. When you, if you read a book, nine times out of 10, things are broken up into, he had eggs, bacon, and toast. Three. See, it, it think they're broken up into threes in their lists like that because three is a magic number. Uh, things just work better in three, which I think is hilarious in, from a theologian's perspective because, of course, three being a number that everybody just kind of innately knows works is funny when you know that God is one who is three. <laughs> that the Trinitarian number that pervades all of Scripture somehow even unconsciously pervades the mind of man. So heart, soul, and mind, yes. Remember, what is the, what is the sin that causes the fall? What is the sin of Adam and Eve? No. Uh, yes, what's the word for that? It's one of the seven deadly sins. That's a clue. If you, yes, pride. Pride is the sin of Adam and Eve. Not eating the fruit. Because what comes first? Like you said, Bill, if, if you want to pick the fruit and take a bite of it, what do you first have to do? You have to think about it, and you have to want to do it, and you have to make up your mind that that's what you're going to do. My body doesn't just go, oh, and my mind is behind going, wait, what are you doing, body? No, stop. My brain controls my body. If I want to pick a fruit and eat it, then I'm doing it because I want to do it. I'm making the decision. It's an act of the will before it's an act of the body. So the, the way that man acts is triune because man is a triune creature. Body, soul, spirit. Uh, you're, you're, you are body and soul, and the union of body and soul births the mind or the will or the intellect, however you want to talk about it. Bill. 40 plus years ago, Sumner, Iowa, in church with my cousin Carl Heitman, and the pastor preached a sermon on that verse and the, and the following verse, mm -hmm. your neighbor as yourself. Yep. And I remember distinctly him saying the summary of the Ten Commandments. And that's the first time, all the way through confirmation class and all sermons and everything, the first time that it actually tied it together. You know, I was, yeah, okay, I guess I hadn't been reading the Bible very good. <laughs> well. <laughs> I, it's, uh, I'm just sitting there, you know, like, wow, hey, that's a thought. It's, it's easy to get lost in the Ten Commandments. One, if you think of them as just commandments, and two, when you look at them as a list. Well, how many, what, what are the commandments? Well, there's 10 of them, and you, you know, like bullet points. It's easy to get lost in that. And then, this is all today, by the way, because the text, the pericope, the gospel for today is uh, the, uh, the Good Samaritan. And of course, why does Jesus tell the parable of the Good Samaritan? Do you remember? 
because a lawyer, an expert in the law, comes and challenges him. What must I do? And he says, well, you know the law, don't you? You're a lawyer. What does the law say? And he says, well, it says to love God with all my being and to love my neighbor. And Jesus says, you're right. Do that and you'll live. That's, that's the law. What is the law for? The law is for maintaining that relationship. It's about love. The law is not given so God can say, dance, monkeys, dance. It's so that he can say, this is what it means to be in fellowship. And you used to know this, but now you've fallen and you don't know it anymore, and now this is what it means. This is what you have to be. This is, these are the, guy, the rules of the house. This is what it means if you want to be with me. And the, the root of all of it is love. So that, the, that the, the, you look at the law, the law, and the root of the law is actually love. It isn't that God in his wrath says, well, that's it. I'm tired of seeing them misbehave like that. I'm going to give them some commands to get them whipped into shape. That's not, that's not the, the purpose at all. The, the commandments, the law of God is born from God's love. Love is at the root of the commands. The, God wants you to love him, and he wants you to love your neighbor. Love is the root of all things. God is love. And the, the commandments really change in tone when you start looking at them that way. Yes? He also, by pressing that, pressures on the, uh, Ephesians 2, 8, 9, and 10, for by grace are you saved through faith. Mm -hmm. And then it goes on, we are created for workmanship in Christ Jesus. Yeah. So he's touching on the point there that, yeah, you can love that guy laying on the roadside. No, go over and help him up. Or go over and look at him. Yes. Uh, there's a church father, and I don't remember who it is, but he says, it's never enough to know God's law. Everybody knows God's law. The question is not whether you know it or not. The question is whether you do it. Knowing is theoretical. That's, do I know the law? Well, sure, maybe I know it, but what good does it do me if I know it? What good does the Ten Commandments do me if all that I ever do is just know that they are? And then I'm out stealing and committing adultery and having other gods. Well, I know the commandments say this. Okay, what good is the knowing? See, Gail. Okay, I have a question. Uh-huh, go. So, with the Holy Spirit, Spirit in our lives... Okay, yeah. Um, and looking at this verse, uh -huh. you can still fail um, by loving the Lord with all your heart and all your mind. Can we fail with the Holy Spirit to love the Lord with all our soul? Sure. Do you, do you, do you confess on in the divine service that you have sinned in thought, word, and deed? Yeah, but I think thought, word, and deed is heart and mind. But there's three of them. See, the thing is, heart... So, let's talk about this. Heart, in this context, would be your body. Right, so we talk about the heart as the physical seat of faith, which is uh, nicer than the, the early world. Greeks and uh, in the Mediterranean, they talked about it as being my bowels. My faith lives in my bowels. 
<laughs> make a joyful noise to the Lord. <laughs> That's a little bit crass. <laughs> okay, so the heart is the seed of faith, but it's a physical thing. My heart. Where does love live? In my heart. What do you give out on Valentine's? Hearts. Okay. With all your soul, that's the spiritual side of you. The new, so let's, talk, let's say the new man. So we can say heart would be, if, you, if we want to make a one-for-one one comparison, it doesn't actually work perfectly, but heart would technically be deed. Uh, soul, I would say, is probably word and mind, your intellect, your thought, and your will would be thought. If you want to do a one-for-one. One. It's not really made to be a one-for-one, one, so it doesn't really work that well. But yeah, you can, sin in, you, you can sin and fail in soul as well. But I would encourage you not to think about it. The point of this is not to say that I have three constituent parts and that I want to make sure each part is loving God. Because really, if you're not loving God with all your soul, are you loving him with all your heart or all your mind? No, you're not. I mean, you can't say, I love him with all my mind and I love him with all my heart, but I love him mostly with my soul. If one of them lacks, they all lack because they're all interconnected. It's the fullness of your, of your being. It's like saying, um, we want to serve the Lord with our feet, with our hands, and with our songs. Well, what are we really saying? With the fullness of yourself. And then these are the ways that I do it. So this is, this is not about saying I want to level up my heart to the fullest and I want to level up my mind to the fullest and I want to level up my, my soul to the fullest. It's about loving the Lord with the, with the fullness of you, who you are as a person. Because the fullness of your person is body and soul and then your, your mind is, is that the two of them come together. And that's, that's your mind, your will. You want to love God in will, in... Somebody must have made a mess. It sounds like the vacuum. Um, okay, does that answer... Does that answer your question? Okay. Yeah, you can have the Holy Spirit and still sin. In fact, Paul, or uh, Johann Gerhard says that it, it, it obviously grieves the Holy Spirit and to will, willingly sin pushes the Spirit away from you. So that's another instance where if you really want to get down to the root and you want to talk about love, uh, you can choose not to love God. And when you sin, greater or smaller, it's in degrees of choosing not to love God. Does that make sense? Okay. Pastor, if you were asking God to do something and didn't provide it the way you wanted it, would that kind of be one of those times where you're thinking, well, maybe he's just not quite there? Knowing fully well he's doing what he's supposed to do for you, that you yourself are not receiving it. Uh, so, for example, if I had a friend with 
terminal cancer and I prayed that they would be healed of all of their cancer and get up out of their bed and, 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 and be cancer free and then they died of cancer and I said well I prayed and I asked for this and then God didn't give it to me so God must not really be there listening. Oh, oh yeah, yeah it is. You can, you, you may feel that way, but the problem is to feel that way is also a temptation. To, to, the temptation to despair in a prayer that you believe has not been answered only because you didn't get what you thought you were asking for exactly. To, to use the kind of ongoing comedic example, I still haven't gotten a Ford Bronco that showed up in my driveway one morning. So does that mean that God doesn't hear my prayers when I pray for it? It's, by the way, it's not like I sit down in my office and my first prayer of every day is, blessed be thy name, O Lord, and may the Ford Bronco be mine. Amen. You know, it's just, I'm just using it mostly as a joke. But uh, does that mean that God isn't listening to my prayer? No, no, n not at all. And in fact, it doesn't even mean that God didn't answer my prayer. And faith knows that. Faith knows that. But there's always the temptation to consider, well, you didn't get what you prayed for. Maybe that's because God didn't really hear you. And then you can go into two directions with that. So, so like a flow chart. So God didn't hear me. Now what do I do? I can either then deny that God exists at all and become an atheist because I prayed and I didn't get what I thought I was asking for. And then you have the other side, which is then getting angry with God because he didn't give me what I wanted. And, and this is why I say, I use words like what I wanted and what I thought I was asking for. Because when you, can anybody deny that the person with terminal cancer who dies in the Lord has gotten a healing, a full healing of the body? Can anybody deny that? No, but you do when you say, well, he didn't get up out of his bed and walk out of the hospital, and that's what I really wanted. But what do we pray in the Lord's Prayer? Thy will be done. So what are you really praying for? Are you praying for what you want, or are you praying for what the Lord would have you want? See, that's the thing, too. But, so it's always a temptation to think that because things didn't work out exactly, precisely the way that you wanted them to, that God either doesn't hear or doesn't care. And, and that's a temptation to think that way, a temptation to despair. But, but, it, but it is, like with all temptations, it's a ruse, it's a sham, it's not, the, it's not reality. God does listen. God always gives you that for which you ask or something better. And look at it from the perspective of the person with terminal cancer. If the person with terminal cancer knows I've got terminal cancer, but they also know I'm in the Lord, and they say, I'm to the point now where, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm done. I'm ready to be with the Lord. I don't want any treatment anymore. 
I'm ready to see my Lord. And you're there going, no, no, you're going to get out of that bed because I want to spend more time with you. And then the Lord takes that person and then you're mad at the Lord. Who, who is the problem there? You are the problem, see? And you don't know what you're asking for. And even though you may or may not know what you're asking for, the Spirit still intercedes for you with groanings that cannot be uttered. The Spirit always knows really what the request is. The Spirit also always knows what is good, and the Lord always gives what is good. It, now, and what is good isn't always what you want. The perfect example of that is this. Go out back and bring me a switch. Do you want to go out and bring a switch? No, you do not. That's right, and you don't want to get a little one either. <laughs> uh, right. So you, you don't want to go out and get the switch, but when you become an adult and you look back on going out and getting the switch, is that something that was good for you? Yes. Or taking medicine. Do you want to take the foul-tasting medicine or the medicine that gives you bad side effects? Well, no. But is it good for you? Yes. It's just a spoonful of sugar. Don't worry, it'll go down, okay? Yeah, and we can talk about prayer, I mean, forever. Because we don't, most of the time, we don't understand what we're really praying for. And prayer is, in a sense, you saying, give me a pony, give me a pony because I want a pony. And you said, if I asked for anything in your name, you would give it to me and therefore give me a pony. And then the pony doesn't come. You go, well, doggone it, God doesn't listen to me. And God's up there going, I, there are so many better things for you to ask for. Why are you asking for a pony? You know, just because dad says no doesn't mean that God doesn't, or just because dad says no when you ask him for something doesn't mean that he doesn't love you. Uh, <laughs> it's like saying, you know, dad, dad says, what do you want for birthday? And you say, well, I want blah, blah, blah that I saw on TV with the blah, blah, blah and the, and the bing, bang. And you know, I don't know what, I don't know what kids want now. No, I want that, I want that. And then you don't get that. And then, well, Dad didn't love me because he didn't get me the bling, 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 and all my friends have it, and blah, blah, blah. And you're like, maybe love is not getting it for you. In fact, a lot of the time, love is not giving you the things that you want. Okay, let's talk about the hymn a little bit. This is a brand new hymn to you. Um, but before we do that, we need to talk about the day, the Good Samaritan. Um, so I want to show you, I've got a few images here. This one's a little bit hard to see. There's a lot of detail and I can't make it bigger. So this is just kind of what it is. This is the entire parable it, it, going like this. You can, you see everything that happens from beginning to end. This is the, the Orthodox icon of the Good Samaritan parable. So here is the man traveling from Jerusalem. You can see it has the walls and the dome, so you know it's Jerusalem. Now, there, there are a few things to notice here because remember that icons are not works of art. They are not pictures. They are not painted, even though the artist might have paints and a brush, they aren't painted, they're written. And when you're looking at an icon, 
You're not looking at it, you are reading it. Because it is a, it, it is the visible word, the visible word, like Jesus. Jesus is the icon of the Father. He is the visible God, the visible word. So that's what iconography is. So this is actually a sermon in a, in a way because it's preaching to you a whole bunch of different things. And I love this. This is why I'm taking the time to share it with you because there's a lot of really neat, important things to notice. Firstly, I, I, you might not be able to see, but what do these robbers look like? They look like devils. Look, they've got little horns and they've got little curly tails. Uh, that's what Eastern devils look like. Western devils look like pitchfork. Eastern devils look like these guys with the tails. Okay. Uh, why is it that the bandits are depicted as devils? To answer that question, you have to look at what the Samaritan, or who the Samaritan looks like. Who does the Samaritan look like? Yes, it does look like Jesus. And in fact, it doesn't, the Samaritan doesn't only look like Jesus. The Samaritan is Jesus. Which then is a key to understanding the devils as the bandits. Because is the parable of the Good Samaritan just a moral tale to tell you, hey, this is what you should be doing, you snarky little lawyer, you. Is that all it is? No, it's a tale of salvation. Who is the man? Us. You are the man. And you are beat up by the roadside, aren't you? And who does it to you? The devil! This is why this is so great. The parable of the Good Samaritan is, it's so much greater than what anybody thinks it is. Because everybody, like, what does the world think it is? Hey, you Christians. What are you doing about the Good Samaritan? I always pictured it as, as Jesus being in that, because his, whosoever you did it to the least of these, you did it to me. Well, sure. So I mean, there's multiple layers. Yeah. Okay. So, all right, here they are. You see the action. Here's where he starts on his journey. Here's where he gets beat up. And then he's laying there injured and they're walking away with all his stuff. Then, who are these people? This is hard to tell. This guy, you might, if you know anything about iconography, you might actually be able to tell who this guy is because he has wild hair. Who said that? Yes! Well done. It's John the Baptist. John the Baptist in iconography is always depicted with really wild hair. Yes? Good. I'm proud of you. Well done. Okay, that's John the Baptist. And this guy is Moses. Now, how many men walked by the wounded fellow? A priest and a Levite. Priest and a Levite. Why is Moses, why are Moses and John the Baptist the ones who are depicted as those who walk by? By the way, John the Baptist looks that way because he's supposed to look like Isaiah. Elijah, excuse me. Uh, the prophet Elijah. You 
I think she saw it in my eyes. She knew that I was going to misspeak because I saw her start to say it before I said anything. <laughs> There's that marital bond. <laughs> yes, sorry, it's, it's Elijah because he, John the Baptist is the new Elijah. So in iconography, it's Elijah slash John the Baptist. They look exactly the same. Uh, so why these two? Did they walk by? Would Moses really have left a man there? Would Elijah or John the Baptist have done that? No. So why are they the ones depicted that way? Think about the transfiguration. Who does Jesus talk to? Mm-hmm. Why? Why Moses and Elijah? Well, you said that was <laughs> Moses, uh, the law and the prophets. Yes, that's it. You can stop there because that's correct. That's correct. The law and the prophets. Hey, you know what? This is the, this is the kind of day every pastor hopes for because you've got the answers like this and it makes me so happy. You're learning and I love it. It's, it's the law and the prophets. Why are the law and the prophets the ones that walk by and leave you there wounded? Because what saves? Christ and his? His? What's the word of Christ called? The gospel. I'm trying to keep it with the, you know, the books theme. Law, prophets, gospel. Okay? It's the gospel of Christ. The law and the prophets don't save you because you transgress. So they walk by you and leave you there miserable. Because what is the thing that binds you and heals you and picks you up? The gospel. That's what's being preached here. Notice this. This guy here has brown hair. This guy here has a big white beard and white hair. What is that about? He's a young man here. He's an old man there. It's a passage of time. He's, he's waited there a long time, injured. And now the Good Samaritan, that is Jesus, comes. And he takes him to the inn... And the inn, you can say symbolically, is the church. And if the inn is the church, and Jesus is the Samaritan, and he brings the man into the church, and then he looks at the innkeeper and says, take care of him, and I'll repay you for everything that you do to him. Who is the innkeeper? Pastor. The pastor. The innkeeper is the pastor, which is why when Jesus says, hey, I'll repay you for everything you do. <laughs> That's a, a veiled threat. Because pastors are judged more harshly. See, the laity are never held accountable for what they don't know because whose job is it to teach them? The pastor. So if you don't know that salvation is by grace alone through Christ, is it your fault that you don't know that? No, whose fault is it? The pastor who never taught you. So then when Christ comes, he says, I'll be back here to pick this guy up. You just take care of him while I'm gone. 
And then when he comes back, and if the guy is still in bad shape, he says, now what in the hey-ho? It's not the guy's fault he's still in bad shape. It's your fault because you didn't take care of him. Pastors have the worst performance evaluation imaginable. Every pastor ought to be sweating bullets because every pastor knows he has not done his job to the very fullest that he should be. Yeah, so there. Uh, boy, I could talk about this all day. I love this icon, but we need, I've got a, whoops, I've got a couple others. This is just a contemporary one. This came from England. You can tell by the way that the two men are dressed. Uh, what's the difference between the man on the ground and the two men that pass by and the man who's taking care of them? Yeah, it's okay, it's okay to say it. It's not a trick. Uh, yeah, he is ethnically different because who is the man that takes care of the man by the road? He is a Samaritan, which were considered half-breed garbage. Uh, nobody liked the Samaritans. Samaritans were garbage people from a garbage nation. They were hated. That's why that Jesus deals with the Samaritans is a big deal. It's why the person who stops to help is a Samaritan in the parable because it's the lowest of the low, a garbage person who could, nothing good could come out of one of those. And they do. And that's an indictment against all of the Jews who consider themselves to be superior but who would walk by the guy. Yeah, you're so great. You follow the law. You take care of your neighbor. Well, the priest and the Levite walked right by him. It was the Samaritan that took care of him. That's why it's a Samaritan. And lastly, this is my favorite, because it's really harsh. Because look at, who is that? That's the pastor. Where's he on his way to? Church. Where's this guy with the guitar on his way to? Church. He's going to church. Okay. It's not necessarily photo accurate, but it's the, the theme of it that I really like. They're, they're going to church. Everybody's going to church, and they're walking right by the guy that needs help because they're on their way to church. Well, boy, I can't stop to help you. I'm on my way to church. And then church becomes an idol. Isn't that strange? But it's true. Church actually can become your idol. <clears throat> So they're, ru they're running by the guy, and I love this because you, you can't really see it unless you're close, but he has an icon, and he has prayer, he has prayer ropes and an icon with him. He's dying, but he, he loves the Lord, and these guys love the Lord too, but they're walking right by this guy. And one of them is the pastor. That's really harsh, but I like it a lot. So that's today, the Good Samaritan. Now, let's talk about this hymn. It's only available to you on a handout like this because this is originally published in the, the English hymnal of 1906. And then it's continued on. And the English hymnal is associated with a particular denomination, much like the Lutheran hymnal is, and that is the Anglican Church. So the, this, is, this is an... This is kind of a strange hymn because it really, until recently, only ever appeared in Anglican hymnals, and then the Roman Catholics took it, and, and the, the Roman Catholics now have it in their hymnals. But it was written by Rabanus Maurus, who we have talked about here before, and he was a Roman Catholic Benedictine monk 
in uh, the early, let's see, yeah, 776 to 856. So in the 8th, 9th centuries in um, Mainz, northern Germany is where he was. So he was a Benedictine monk, and somehow it's the Anglican church that gets this, which we'll talk about in just a second. But this is a hymn from Michaelmas, which, what's the common name from Michaelmas? Yeah, the Feast of St. Michael and All Angels. This is a little church vocabulary for you. Anything that ends with mass? What's the, what's the one that everybody knows that ends in mass? Christmas, which is Christ Mass, which is the Mass for Christ. Or what we would say, the Feast of the Birth of Christ. Um, so Michael Mass is the feast of, or the mass of St. Michael and all angels, the feast of St. Michael and all angels, which is one of my favorite feast days, personally. Uh, but this is a hymn that was specifically written for that feast day. One interesting thing that you'll note when you look at the text that Rabanus Maurus wrote uh, is that there are, there's the introductory stanza and then the, the last doxological stanza. And then as you have it on your, as it's printed here, there are three stanzas in the middle. There's actually a fourth stanza, but I omitted that. And you'll see why in a little bit. But there's three stanzas, one of them for each of the big time archangels. Can you name without looking at the hymn who the archangels are? The, the three big ones. Gabriel. Mm-hmm. Gabriel and Michael. Yes. Who's the third? <laughs> Who said that? Oh, you said that. Well, you don't. <laughs> yeah, it's Raphael. And this is, the, this is where it gets fun. Where is Raphael in the Bible? He's not. <laughs> He's in the Apocrypha, in multiple places in the Apocrypha, but uh, in large part in the book of Tobit. Raphael is in the book of Tobit. And remember, what do we think about the Apocrypha? Second only to Scripture. Apocrypha is second only to Scripture. It's church canon, and it's really important church canon. It isn't scripture, but it's really important. And it's not like you read the Apocrypha and go, well, this is a load of garbage. I mean, you shouldn't. Maybe you do, but you shouldn't if you do. It's important. So actually, Tobit, an apocryphal book, and one of the books of Enoch, which is not, a, a, one, not in the Apocrypha, uh, those deal with the archangel Raphael. And Raphael, through church history, is actually associated with the pool of Bethesda. Remember, the angel puts his finger into the water and stirs the waters and it causes healing. That's who they say is the archangel Raphael, that he is the one who heals the people of God. So anyway, that is important for you to know because when you look through the text of the stanzas, it talks about Raphael as the healer. Um, Michael, we would say, is the 
the defender, yeah. In fact, if, you, if you're ever involved with law enforcement, there's quite a devotion to St. Michael and the prayer of St. Michael. I think he's considered the patron saint of law enforcement, which we wouldn't necessarily care about who the patron saints are because there's like a patron saint of headaches. So if you have a headache, you pray to, I think it's St. Teresa of Avila, actually, who is someone I really like. And she was a headache. So, I don't know. Anyway, it, none of that matters. Um, I just think I, I wanted to point out to you the third name of the angel because I assumed that you didn't know it. Now, Rabanus Morris, when did we talk about him? You probably don't remember. He's really a big deal in the church as far as hymns go because he wrote Veni Creator Spiritus. Do you know what Veni Creator Spiritus is? Da da Veni Creator Spiritus. Come, Holy God, Creator blessed. Mm, 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 mm. You know that hymn. This guy wrote it. That's, that is one of the hymns of the Christian church. Everybody knows that hymn. And this guy did it. And he also did this hymn, and these two are the two biggest hymns that he wrote, which is surprising because everybody knows Veni Creator, but nobody knows Christ the Fair Glory. Now I'm going to show this to you. This is another icon called the Synaxis of the Angels. Uh, this goes along with the title, Christ the Fair Glory of the Angels. So when the angel appears and they're shining white, uh, whose glory are they reflecting? Christ's glory. And here he is in the center. There's Jesus. And then you have, I've talked about this before, how you can tell the difference between the different kinds of angels. So this guy, the eye with the wheel and the three wings, is a cherub. The cherubim look like that with the eye. That's how they're depicted. I don't know what they actually look like. I'll clarify that. This is how they're depicted. You can go downstairs into the, chap the Sunday school chapel, and there's the icons up there of creation. And there's one uh, when God creates the stars of the heavens, and it's all the angels that are singing. And you can see all these different depictions of the different ranks of angels. So that's a cherub. The six-winged... Seraphim are here, it's just a face with wings, and then these guys that look a little bit more like people are the archangels in the back, okay? So this is, but Christ is always at the center and the glory of Christ radiates outward. And that's important, I have it here on your papers, you can see the same thing. Now the tune of this is from the cathedral in France at Rouen, and that tune is from the 17th century. So when Morris originally writes the text, this is the thing you have to keep in mind. The original Latin texts are not set to tunes the way that we think of them now. The, the, the kind of tune that they would be set to would be a chant. And then later on, these other melodies become added. And then because they're added, they stick. So a lot of the hymns that you know, with the tunes that you know, aren't the tune that would have been sung with the text originally. It happened later, but everybody loved it so much and the church thought it was such a good tune that it kept it, and that's why you know it that way. 
So this is, this is one like that, where the, the, the tune, which is Celites Plaudant, um, all the heavens praise the Lord, is, is what that is, essentially. So that tune is from the 17th century in France, that's then associated with this Latin text from Mainz in Germany from the 9th or 7th and 8th century, and then gets passed down because everybody loves it so much. Um, it was lost until the late part of the 18th century into the early, or late part of the 1800s into the early 1900s. Um, it was, its first publication in English was in the English Hymnal of 1906, uh, which was a, a project by three big time people. One is Athelstan Riley, which just sounds like a, a, a British name, doesn't it? Ah, yes, Athelstan. Athelstan Riley, Percy Darmer, and Ralph Vaughan Williams, Rafe Vaughan Williams, actually. Which, and you know Vaughan Williams, notable composer. So uh, Darmer was the editor-in-chief and the musical editor. Riley did a lot of the translations. Darmer helped edit some of the translations. He edited this one. Uh, and then Von Williams wrote all the tunes and then assisted in the editing of the music for the hymnal. So the three of these guys worked together. We have a number of tunes in our hymnal that are by Von Williams. Uh, one of them we've talked about before is the Dives and Lazarus tune. Da da dum bum 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 bum. Von Williams. Okay, so he's a big time composer. Percy Darmer is a really interesting guy. He was a uh, Christian socialist. Uh, everything that I read about him made me not care for him very much. That's me being charitable. But the work that he did was really good work. So that's one of those things where I like the work that he did, but I really can't stand the individual. Uh, <laughs> he died. His last project in life was that he ran a tavern for the homeless people and the unemployed. So you could come in and get beer on the house from Percy Darmer at his tavern. But he was a huge proponent for socialism. So, you know, what goes around comes around. Uh, so, Von Williams wrote the harmony for this. He didn't write the tune, but he harmonized this. And you can sort of hear it. It sounds very British. If you know, if you know English hymnody, it doesn't sound like German hymnody at all. And I'm not saying one is better than the other. I like them both. They're just very distinct and different. And I'll play this for you so you can hear it. It's a very popular hymn now, specifically within the Anglican Church, growing in popularity in the Roman Catholic Church. It's a, it's a very good hymn. Now, if you just turn this over, there's one stanza, stanza number five on the back here that I omitted. It's, may the blessed mother of our God and Savior May the assembly of the saints in glory, may the celestial company of angels ever assist us. Is there anything technically wrong with that? No, actually, there isn't. There's, there's nothing technically wrong with that. But for most Lutherans, that kind of language is a little, makes us a little jittery. So it, something like that would have been removed if it were in our hymnal, omitted. And so for our purposes, I'm omitting it too, because it takes less energy to omit it than it would to make sure that every single individual who might be singing this hymn understands exactly what all of the language means 
and how it relates to what the confessions are of the Lutheran Church. It's just easier not to do that. <laughs> so let's, let's listen to this. We'll listen to it once through, and then we'll, I don't know, we'll sing the first and the fifth stanza. It's pretty short, but it's very pretty. So let's listen to this. Stanza one. Christ, the fair glory of the holy angels, maker of all men, ruler of all nations, grant of thy mercy. Unto us, thy servants, steps up to heaven. Father Almighty, Son and Holy Spirit, God ever-blessed, be thou our preserver, thine is the glory which the angels worship, veiling their faces. Amen. All right, we'll see you at the altar. <laughs> <laughs>